thing that's going on, we felt that God's people need to dig into God's character. That it would bless us as a church to really spend at least 15 weeks or 15 sermons just really zooming in on God's heart. And so we chose the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We, we're not going to preach through Isaiah consecutively, okay? So this is not going to be an expository series through every single chapter and verse of Isaiah. I think that would take a long time. Uh, but instead, we've selected, we've selected 15 passages where we're going to focus on the attributes of God. When we say attributes, we are, as I mentioned, referring to his character. Uh, and today, we're going to introduce the series. Now, there's a lot of historical material when it comes to the prophet of Isaiah. But rather than giving you a history lecture today, we'll give you little bits and pieces as we go along. We'll give you the necessary historical information each week. Now, in the bulk of Isaiah, you see that God is rebuking his people. Isaiah is written to the southern kingdom of Judah. And throughout the book, it spans over the time frame where Judah is under four different kings. Now, we're in Isaiah chapter 1 today, and that'll serve as an introduction where you see God as a judge, but also it points towards the hope of redemption. It hints towards redemption because we know re the redemptive plan of God is where the Bible is pointing towards, right? So I've entitled our message today, Knowing God as Judge and Redeemer. But a lot of the early part of Isaiah, as you read through, it's all judgment. It's basically God people, God's people have sinned. Well, how have they sinned? They've either committed themselves to idolatry, adultery, or some other way of being far from him. And today we're going to look at how Judah, they turn their worship into empty rituals. They're just going through the motions. They're very far from God. The thought that I want you to keep in mind as we go through our message is, is very simple. It's not the big idea, but it's very simple. God's people are far from God because God's leaders are far from God. In other words, the spiritual, the spiritual condition of Israel or Judah at the time is dead. Why? Because the spiritual leaders are dead. But my question always is, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? The spiritual leaders weren't always dead. And another sentence that I want you to run through your hearts, not your mind, is because David is not on the throne. Can you say that with me? David is not on the throne, right? Here, David is, in Isaiah, David is not on the throne. One like David is not on the throne. Now, i got to have some self-control, otherwise we're going to preach the gospel right now. One like David is not on the throne. And as a result, God's people are far from God because a man after God's own heart, one in the likeness of David, is not on the throne. Now, the first thing we're going to see is, well, I said that for you, God's people are far from God because God's leaders are far from God, but is the spiritual condition of God's people. Now, I want you just to notice the spiritual condition of God's people in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, right? So that, that, those are the four kings that I mentioned. Now, Isaiah chapter 1 takes place under King Uzziah. 
Now, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us, as you read through Isaiah, and as you begin to see what's happening, is that King Uzziah was a good king. Militarily, commercially, politically. He had built up the southern kingdom of Israel to have a strong military, and they were commercially successful. But, but they were afraid of the Syrians. They were always under the impending threats of Assyrian invasion. But the one problem with Uzziah was he was not a spiritual king. And so even though Judah was strong militarily and strong politically, they were dead spiritually. Uzziah was far from God. As a result, the people were far from God. And so that's what we have to know from Isaiah 1.1. Now for this series, you know, you look at these passages, they're super long. So rather than throwing every single verse on the screen, I just need you to bring your Bibles for this series. And you have your Bibles on your phones, you know, pull it up on your device. But this is the best way to summarize, right? Rather than putting the verses on the screen, when you look at the spiritual condition of God's people, I want you to notice how they're described in verse 1. But I want you to actually look at your Bibles. I'm just going to give you the statement, summarize. They acted like rebellious children. That's what verse 1 says. Verse 3, it says they were lacking in understanding. They did not truly know God. They did not know themselves. Verse 4 tells us Judah was described as a sinful nation, not a holy priesthood, not a, a, a people that were set apart for God, but a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, verse 4 describes. Then in verses 5 to 8, it describes that because of their rebellion, that God's people have been struck down. They've been bruised, they've been bloody, they've been besieged. God allowed his people to experience invasion and warfare because God's people wanted to do things the ways of the world so they would be subject to the ways of the world. They did not want to look to their God because there's no one truly directing them to God. Then in verse 10, God offers the hope of forgiveness, but the dominant theme of this chapter is one of disappointment. God is immensely disappointed by the wickedness of his people. And so we see that God's people are far from God. That's the spiritual condition of God's people. But the heart of Isaiah chapter 1 focuses not on the people per se, but the spiritual condition of God's leaders. So once again, God's people are far from God because God's leaders are far from God. God's leaders are far from God because one like David is not on the throne. One like David is not on the throne. Now, was David perfect? Again, the question, how did we get here? David, conspiracy to murder, he was an adulterer, but he repented. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. He fell into temptation. David was far from perfect, but what was it about David? He was a man after God's own heart. He sought to be near to God. So as, I, as I'm reading this, and you're going to see scripture after scripture, my question is, these leaders didn't always start this way. Pastors who fall into moral failure did not always start, start that way. When they started day one of seminary, excited, wanting to follow God and serve God's people. Or when they were at that conference and when the speaker said, if you want to dedicate your life to serve the Lord, come down and receive prayer. How did, they, how did these pastors get to the point of good intention and wanting to love God 
to the point of moral failure or to the point of, of, of embezzlement or abusing their authority. How do God's people become far from God? It's when God's leaders are from, far from God. How do God's leaders go from near God to far from God through a couple generations? That's the question we have to always be asking is that these leaders didn't always start this way because they started with David. Here we go. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers. It's addressed not to the people, but the rulers. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You know, Genesis chapters 18 and 19, it records Sodom and Gomorrah, two famous cities with an infamous reputation of the most detestable sin, Sodom and Gomorrah were filled with the most detestable evil. So bad that God sent fire and brimstone from heaven to consume these cities. And from that point on, throughout the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah became symbolic. Whenever God or the people of God described Cities and towns as Sodom and Gomorrah, it was saying these cities represent the worst of the worst, the most detestable and gross of society. And now it's the Lord. The Lord refers to Judah and Jerusalem, the people, his own people. He refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's insulting. But what is their evil? Their evil, why would God refer to his own people as Sodom and Gomorrah, their evil was not a lack of religion, but a lack of genuine relationship with God. You see, they were meeting together for worship. They were keeping the festival go- festivals going. They were honoring the Sabbath. They were offering up sacrifices. You see this in starting in verse 11. It says, what to me is the multitude? That means it's not just one sacrifice, but there's a multitude, right? There's more than many What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, contemporary language of your worship services. Now, Israel and the church are not the same. I'm not identifying the church and planting that onto Judah. It was a different time, different covenant, but you get the parallel. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. But God, you told us to offer up rams in the Old Testament. Yeah, but I don't like the rams. I like the chargers, God says. No, no. No, he's, he's, he's saying, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beast. Well-fed. The fattened calf was the most expensive, were one of the most expensive offerings. And he said, I don't care how expensive your offering is, there's nothing there. It's just barbecue. Right? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Right? Blood offering. The blood symbolized atonement, meaning you have to pay a penalty for your sin. And when Israel would offer up these animals, It was to be a substitutionary sacrifice where God would see, okay, rather than you dying because you're sinful, this animal 
dies. And rather than your blood, it's the blood of the animals. But now God looks at his people and he says, you guys are being really religious, but your heart is far from me. Uh, just a side note, that when it says, what is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord, that phrase, says the Lord, it's written in the Hebrew imperfect. All that means to say in nerd talk is that the Lord has not told them this the first time. It's not two times, not three times. But, the, but it's repeated. It's imperfect, meaning God is continually, constantly telling them, your worship is worthless to me. Even though you're, you're doing exactly what I commanded your forefathers to do, your heart is not right. Because your leaders are far from me. Because one like David is not on the throne. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, now again, I'm going to say church, but Judah is not the church. When you come to church, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? All right, so that's talking about all the animals. It's, it's like they're sacrificing all the animals, but God doesn't look at that as honorable. He's like, all these animals are just trampling in the holy courts of God. Then you look at verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. But God, you told us to serve you in this way. But you don't love me. God knows it. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath. So they're honoring the Sabbath. New moon. They had moon festivals. I didn't know that Judah was Chinese, but okay. You know, new moon festivals. Moon cakes. And the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly because they're sinful. See, the problem is not that they're sinful. The problem is that they don't know God. They're not truly repentant. They're going through the motions of making offerings. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. God, I thought you were a God of love. I mean, we just finished... John, it's a gospel, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But here, for God to say he hates, and he doesn't just say I hate, he says my soul hates. My soul hates is saying it's so detestable that they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. But God, I thought you're so patient and kind. I thought that you have, you have eternal long-suffering, but God is disgusted with his own people. And then in verse 15, look at the language. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Well, God, you know, you see everything. What do you mean? And, and God's just saying, I am purposely turning away from you symbolically because it's so disgusting when you do what I told you to do, which is worship me. But God, we're going through the motions. Even though you make many prayers, but God, you tell us to pray without ceasing in the New Testament. But here, they're praying. But God says, I will not listen. But God, you, you've never said that you won't listen to us. But he's saying here, I will not listen. Your hands, you're making these offerings, but it's just full of blood. You're guilty. What's going on? What's going on is that God's People are far from God because their leaders are far from God. So my question is, how did we get here? Well, some time has passed since one like David 
has been on the throne. And God's people began to want to be like the world, yet they wanted to keep their own identity as God's chosen people. So every single era and epoch, there's going to be some genuine believers. But for the most part, the kings want power. They, they, rather than praying to God to deliver them from the Syrians or the enemies, they build military power. But if you read the book of Joshua, yes, you need to fight. But since when did God's people who have the heavenly host need military power? Yes, when God tells them to fight, they just go and God does the fighting. Read the book of Joshua. Since when did you need anything more than God? But all their kings wanted the success, the prestige, just like every other kingdom and every other king. And then their priesthood. What happened to their priests? Over time, genuine relationship turned into pure religion. It's almost like, okay, Israel, we know that we're sinful, but in order for God not to destroy us, we just got to go through the motions. So let's just offer up the best animals. They could afford to do it. The fattened calf. In time... After generation after generation, the priests don't even believe in God. They're just going through the motions. Why? Because if you can lead these practices, you're a high priest. You're a priest. That's prestigious. Among Israel, who is historically a religious ethnicity, if you're a priest, even if you don't believe in Yahweh, people respect you because of your position. So why not run the people through the motions? And eventually, the people began to think, well, you know what? The Syrians haven't invaded in a while. Things are pretty comfortable. Do I still need to, might I say, go to church? Do I still need to go through the motions? And so what happens is the kings don't love God. God never said the kings have to be perfect. Look at David. The kings don't love God. The priests don't love God. The people don't love God. And eventually, who cares about going to church and going through the motions? Until you face invasion, you will not come on your knees. How did we get there? They got there because their hearts were far from God. Because one like David hasn't been on the throne. And so, if you love God, what do you long for? Now put yourself in someone who's not in Isaiah. They hear the words of Isaiah, and they're one of the faithful remnant. And they've been praying, God, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, hear my cry. My heart longs for one like David. That's the person God saves. David was not a perfect king, but David knew how to turn to God. David knew how to turn the people's hearts to God. And so as I read this, I was moved to tears yesterday. <laughs> as I mentioned, I was at the conference with Pastor Terrence, and how it is nowadays is that I really don't get the heart of my sermon until, until Saturday 
anytime between noon to 11 p.m. So that's why I told our AV, I said, I changed the slides pretty late yesterday. <laughs> Can you make sure my point number three? I totally changed the points. Yesterday in the afternoon, I was thinking about spiritual leaders. God's people are far from God when their leaders are far from God. This week, Pastor Terrence and I were at this conference, and um, there's so many good, faithful leaders, ministers, pastors. Some of them were in very healthy situations. A lot of them are not in healthy situations, and they are faithful. They're trying to hold on, but they need deep encouragement. Some of them are in big churches, but it, it doesn't mean it's healthy. And so a lot of times as we listened and as we shared, I couldn't help but to hold back in some of my sharing because I felt bad because you as a church, this church is so good to our pastors. I know we, we make it our aim not to fight with each other and to love each other. And I know that helps you guys love us. I know we try our best to be faithful, but we're imperfect too. But if we were to ask you, can you guys give us space to be near to God? You know, every fifth Tuesday, we don't have staff meeting. But instead, it, it is our assignment to have a spiritual retreat with God and to, to furnish a report at the end of the day to Pastor Albert in terms of what we did with our time. Did you know that if we were to ask you, can you give us some time so we can, we can pray and spend time with God and get some guest speakers that you guys would actually say, yes, please do that. Did you know that one of the greatest gifts is that one of our staff members, I won't say who she is, but you know who, who that is, you know, treated the entire English staff to a spiritual retreat, on, on, which means she paid for it, on April 26th from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., a guided spiritual retreat of time of solitude in God's word with a spiritual leader and his wife to guide us through. Did you know that this church makes it the aim that if we had issues with our marriage, that there are some wise counselors that we could easily talk to within this church. That this church has allowed us, if we needed to, to constantly draw near to God. I've had people tell me, go home and be with your family. Wait, I'm the lead pastor. I should be the last one to leave. Go home. You have young kids. Go home. That is not how a lot of pastors are treated. So as I read this passage, I said, you know what? If you allow pastors to run people through spiritual programs long enough, and if you don't get any encouragement, good pastors, eventually you begin to ask, why should I keep running people through these programs? And when good pastors leave, and when people become spiritually discouraged, it's just one or two generations before churches become spiritually dead. And so right away, and this is how our team works, we began messaging yesterday. And I said, hey, you know, we don't have a plan yet. But you saw what Pastor Terrence did. He said, today we're going to pray for some of our local churches. We don't know how they're doing well, we know how Anchor is doing because we're friends with their pastor, but we don't know how they're doing. We don't know the condition of their pastors, but we know that these are good pastors. Let's pray for them. Not everybody is in a church like this. So I, I just said, hey, this October, this Pastor's Appreciation Month, let's do something. We don't have a plan yet, but we have some easy ideas. How can we mobilize every single person in the English congregation 
to bless an entire list of pastors that Pastor Terrence has. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We, we know, even if we look at just the Chinese heritage churches, we can tell you which church, which pastor is faithful and good, but is extremely discouraged because they're the one pastor in their church taking care of children, youth, and English. Or they're in a very unhealthy situation, and at any moment they're praying to leave. And in what ways can you anonymously and not mention our church, put together some letters, some gifts, just get it to these pastors? I think we can set up something pretty easily. This October, rather than blessing us, because you guys are so blessed, how do we as a church begin to bless other pastors? Because in Isaiah, these are bad spiritual leaders. But it took something to get there. A lot of times, pastors need encouragement from churches like yours. So if we're already immensely encouraged, how do we as a church begin to encourage good, faithful pastors in difficult places so that they fight the good fight? Because, you hear me on this, God's people are far from God when their leaders are far from God because one like David is not on the throne. But it shouldn't be like that when one like David is sitting on the throne of our hearts now. Leads us to point number three is the repentance that God desires. So we've seen point number one, the spiritual condition of God's people far from God. You're going to see a lot of that as we go through Isaiah. You're going to see we've seen the spiritual condition of God's leaders being rebuked. Running people generation after generation through the programs rather than motivating and mobilizing God's people to do the things that are near to his heart. And to listen to a God with a dynamic heart. You see, you can have the best of intentions. But if pastors... Hearts are not constantly listening to the movement of the Holy Spirit, then they will, for 50 years, run you th through the same programs as 1988 and 1998 and 2000. I don't know why I chose eight, okay, but, but 2018 and 2028, you're doing the same things. Well-meaning, good things. But if you are close to God and you realize that God is dynamic in terms of his heart, is constantly changing for the church in every generation where we need to move, then you will move God's people to constantly steward what God has given us. What does repentance look like? This is the repentance that God desires. Notice what it says. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In verses 16 and 17, you see nine Hebrew commands. Nine imperatives, wash yourselves. It's not saying to take a bath, but wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean from within. It refers to inward purity. It says, 
Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Meaning, change your ways. It's not saying save yourself by good works, but saying your heart doesn't even desire to remove evil. Cease to do evil. That that these spiritual leaders are leading the people to actually do evil. And then it says, seek justice and correct oppression. Okay, so the question then is, God, what justice are you talking about? What oppression are you talking about in the context of Isaiah? And he gives it to you. He says, well, bring justice to the fatherless then. Plead the widow's cause. That's one of the concrete, tacit evils that's happening. Here in the Old Testament, the kings and officials of Israel were supposed to defend the cause of the weak, not oppress them. So what oppression is happening? Is that Judah's leaders are oppressing and taking advantage of the weak. They're lining their pockets with money and extorting people. And they want the best that the world has to offer when they're ignoring orphans and widows. Back in those times, this was a male-dominated society where if your husband passed away or if you're an elderly widow, you could not provide for yourself. And God's people were to provide for the people among the commonwealth of Judah and Israel. They were to take care of people who could not provide for themselves. How about orphans? Orphans would be children who could not provide for themselves. These are the hopeless and the helpless. And instead of taking care of their own people, I don't think Isaiah is saying, though it would have been great, he's not saying, Judah, go take care of the Gentiles. In this context, it's saying even among your own people, you are not taking care of the the needy among your own. Instead, you're lining your pockets, you're running people through the rituals. But how is it that they're offering all these sacrifices thinking that I am pleased when, when they're worshiping and right outside their own people? The children who could not provide for themselves, just ignoring them. The widow, oh, whatever. I don't think that would ever happen in here. And so... That's why God's disgusted with them. You see, if they truly knew God, they would know. You don't care for the hopeless and the helpless to win points with God. You don't go do good deeds to win your salvation. You do it because you know God's character, because you are near to God. And the people will do it because their leaders are near to God, because the king is truly a spiritual son of God. Now let's put this into some application. Now, we could individually do orphan care, which means some of you could foster and adopt, but that's not going to be everyone. You could also adopt a child. We already care, I believe, for our elderly among us to the best of our ability. But what could we do? What would it look like in Walnut, Diamond Bar, Chino Hills, Roland Heights, this community? I talk to uh, our pastors often and saying we're not an urban community. And so when you talk about caring for children, so let's just say orphans, but, but you got to abstract that. So are there children growing up in non-Christian homes? Yes. Doesn't mean that the family setting is bad, but yes. Are there children coming from homes of broken marriages? Yes. Are there children who grow up and they need some financial support? Because maybe 
their parents are going through some financial struggle, yes. Okay, so out of that, what could we do? Well, I think in our community and the people who we could reach, everybody is into academics. Even children from broken homes could have tutoring, could have a drive, so academic needs. Activities, there's plenty of activities. It's not like an urban context where you're providing basic needs for children. So what is it? And I know from talking to some parents and even looking at the school district websites and and, um, looking at Diamond Bar High website, they have this wellness care and all this focus on social-emotional learning. I know sometimes there's some politics there, but just hear me out on this. It seems to me that our children, I'm not talking about just in our church, but our community, the children of our community are dealing, they got the academic thing down. Some of the children can drive themselves, but a lot of our children are depressed. They're dealing with how to have relationships, social struggles, emotional struggles. COVID hurt a lot. And so when you think of orphans, again, just just extrapolate that to a middle to upper middle class society. What can FCBC, I don't know, what can we do? We're called the Hope Center. How can we give hope? I, be, I began to think. I said, like, well, you know, teenagers, but, you know, I, I know we got a lot of people going through biblical counseling, younger men and women that can then provide counsel with our youth team to some of these teenagers. But children, children, you don't just do it overnight, but what if we commit ourselves Every year, I know we got basketball ministry, but we last year we had a basketball outreach in the summer on VBS week. I don't know if we'll do it this year, but maybe next year, maybe the year next. And I talked to some basketball players who can coach. We talked to Katie Lee. We bat this around among our team. And we think, what if we do some intentional basketball camps for children, not teenagers, who are too cool to come and hang out with us. That's what our youth ministry is, right, to learn basketball from Asian people. But... Um, children, children, unbelieving children, children from broken homes, children where maybe first through third grade where they can learn emotional competency. I don't know if you could do that in a week. Research says that secular organizations are trying to do it where you begin to, number one, show them the love of Christ through churches and volunteers that just love on these children. Show them the love of Christ. Secondly, Teach them to collaborate and connect in teamwork. How do you have these social relationships from a very young age? And then build confidence, but in a competitive environment that's healthy and regulated. Learn to lose. Learn to win. Learn how to deal with losing as a team. Learn. And learn how to persevere. And most importantly, emotional competency. How do you express that emotion? And just have coaches. Hey, we don't have to do all the work. If none of you want to do it, what if there's other churches that want to partner? We got two basketball courts. What if one of our basketball players, shout out to all the guys in, inside the annex, right, that, that they could do it too. They could get their coaches who are Christians to come and help us. Even if you just get 50 kids each year, in 10 years, those kids going into junior high, into high school, maybe... At least if they're not working through these things at home, at least they'll remember every summer there's a place I can go. And then it'll ease it up for our youth counselors in 10 years. 
right? And you're not even getting even 70% of the teenagers out there. But a church like ours, how can we be near to God? You see, but or, as you're one of your pastors, I can say, hey, just keep running our programs, guys. And it's good. You know, we do preach the gospel. We do do good programs, okay? We do run our people through. Everybody loves the Lord. But I'm talking about after 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years and 50 years and 60 years of running the same programs, could it be eventually that there's a generation that says, why are we still running these programs? We don't even need church. It's not about church. It's about Christ. And so it's important that one, we encourage other pastors and leaders to be near to God. That we be a church that encourages pastors to hear and listen to God and look back at the word and says, what can we do to care for the closest thing as the people who need hope and help in our community? And it may not be as helpless as other third world countries or other communities, but people are crying for help. And it's our teenagers that need emotional competency and strength. But they have all their AP classes down under their belt. But they're dying inside. They're looking for pills to OD on because they can't handle losing or being socially unaccepted. How do we build that resilience? Let's take ownership over our community. And let's see what other churches want to join us and share resources. You see what it's like to have, notice what he says, come now, verse 18. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they, sh they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And in verse 18, we see this language of God in a courtroom looking at his people, but he says, let's reason together. Let's have this relationship that even though I see that you're sinful, you will be washed white as snow. Even though I see that you're, there's hands on your blood, there's, I mean, there's blood on your hands, hands on your blood, that's weird. <laughs> they shall become like wool. Now, I know if you're an unbeliever today, I apologize for how many times you've talked to Christians and we're all about the blood. I know it's weird, just talk to us about it. it just, you know, you've heard this joke before, right? If you're a non-Christian and you go to church, you're like, dude, what's up with Christians and blood? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, all about the blood. This body, you know, this cup represents his blood. I think people think Christians are crazy, but we just have to explain it to them, okay? That the blood talks, it means grace and forgiveness given to God. It, it's talking about atonement. You see, God will save those who he wants to save. Look at verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. It's talking about ideally the promised land, that you should bear fruit of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we see the repentance that the Lord desires. The, the Lord desires repentance that is near to his heart. Repentance that seeks to do good and not evil. Repentance that because you know God's character, that you focus on those who are in need. That if you have resources, you, you use it on those who are crying out for help around you. First off, in your church and then in your community. And if you're willing and obedient, then you shall bear the fruits. Now, once again, I said earlier that Judah is not the church. 
The church is different. The church is different because Jesus Christ is the greater son of David. He does spiritually sit on the throne of David in heaven. And not only that, he sits on the throne of our hearts. There is one like David who sits on the throne of our hearts. And if the leaders are like Christ and long for Christ, then the people will listen. If the leaders, not my words, but one of our leaders says constantly, pay attention to God. Who says that? Pay attention to God. I'm going to tell you a story because he's not here. I hope he doesn't watch this. Here's why I love Pastor Albert. Here's why I needed him to teach me. Okay? We came back. There's one week. It's Good Friday. It's Easter. All this stuff is happening. Good Friday service is coming. Easter is coming. And there's, there was, I forgot what it was, Terrence, but there was all this stuff happening in our church. And I was like, hey, Pastor Albert, you know, we have this agenda. We got to go, 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 go. Are we going to talk about this in staff meeting? Okay. All our lead pastors are ready, go, go, go. He said, this is Holy Week. It's okay. I'm like, but Easter's coming. He said, this is Holy Week. Wednesday, everybody, quiet your hearts, pay attention to God. Good Friday will come. Everything will take care of itself. You see what, what he did? Our staff, we're like, we need to do things. We got to go, go, go. He's like, I know we're busy. I know there's a lot of things, but this is Holy Week. Pay attention to God. Pay attention to God. Right? That's what God desires that's the heart of repentance. Repentance is not doing all these things for God. That's the fruit of repentance. Repentance literally means to turn. And so when we sin, we turn away from our sins and we turn towards God. But even when we're not actively sinning, God wants us to turn our hearts to him so that especially as people who love God, because Christ lives in our hearts, we are near to Christ. We draw near to him. And then we lead others to turn to Christ, right? And that's not just the pastors. But if the pastors don't do it, why would you do it? If the pastors don't call you to Silent Wednesday prayer meeting, why would you come? And in all of your well-meaning schedules, you're just going to get busy. And then you're going to think, oh, this is what our pastor told us to do. Come to church, give offering, and join the programs. And so you do it. But this is where together as a church, I think God is constantly saying that we need to be near to God. And so here's the big idea. The big idea is that God denounces empty religion and he desires true repentance that comes through Christ. Christ is our judge and redeemer. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the Lord. So technically, he is the one that is saying these things to Isaiah's audience. But he has the right to say it because one day he will come, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, right, where he will be the one to come and bear all of the judgment. He is not only the judge, he is the one who will be 
be judged in our place for our sins so that he could become our redeemer. And Jesus Christ is the greater son of David who lives in our hearts. God denounces empty religion, but he desires true repentance that comes through Christ. So here's my one application for you. This week, including myself, I think all of us, ask yourself, good intentions, where are we running through the motions of the Christian life? Where are we doing things for God? It could even be Bible reading or your prayers or your daily whatever it is, right, or your service. Where are we just running through the motions? And where do we need to rekindle a deep, sincere, intimate relationship with God so that our hearts become near to God? When God's people are far from God, oftentimes it's because their leaders are far from God. And when their leaders are far from God, a relationship with God becomes religion. But when Christ is on the throne and when the leaders are near the heart of God, they lead God's people to see the character and the attributes of God. And God's people are transformed by the character of God. And as a result, religious activity is not just religion, but it's worship because it comes out of a relationship. Let's pray. Father, we're just starting Isaiah. And we pray, Lord, for this series, that through this series, that you would draw us near to you. Your character is so deep. It's like an endless well. The more we study your character, the more we're transformed into Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as a church and as individuals to cultivate that relationship with you, to pay attention to you, and to pay attention to your heart and to pay attention to your word. Lord, as we go now, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us to be disciple makers. Father, if there's anybody in here who does not know you as your personal Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would save them this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.